What's up, guys? Welcome to the second episode of the Good Guy Podcast. I'm your host, Andres Valencio. Topics on today's episode include why the next stretch of games could have a crucial impact on LeBron's tenure with the Los Angeles Lakers, the obvious choice to me, and the Kyler Murray dilemma between being a pro baseball and a pro football player, and it may not be the one you think, and picking the winners of this weekend's conference championship games in the NFL. Who's it going to be in the Super Bowl? We got Chiefs, Patriots, Rams, Saints, all that analysis coming up. Uh, As an aside, I just want to take a second to say thank you to everybody who took the time to listen to the first episode last week. I really appreciate all the feedback I got, some support and positivity. Like I said on the intro last week, this is something that I've wanted to do for a really long time uh, as far as a sports talk podcast. And I hope that as I continue to work at this and hopefully get a little better each week, that you guys will find yourselves wanting to come back, wanting to listen, and hopefully uh, over the next you know, a few months and maybe longer. This is something that we, you can look forward to a little bit each and every week. I know that I was excited about doing it after hearing all the responses from last week. So with all that being said, let's get things going. You're listening to the Good Guy Podcast. Welcome to the second episode of the Good Guy Podcast. Again, I'm your host, Andres Valencio, coming to you on Friday, January 18th, 2019. Hope you all had a beautiful week. Hopefully you guys have some pretty cool plans for the weekend. I know that I'm excited, looking forward to these big games coming up on Sunday. Uh, Up here in the north, I gotta say, I'm living here in the Midwest, and it it is pretty damn cold outside. I guess we're supposed to get some big winter storms. So if you're in this neck of the woods, I hope that you guys are out there keeping warm, staying safe. I know driving on these roads can get pretty hectic around this time of year, especially once you factor in all the, the snow and ice that we're supposed to get. So if you can avoid it, I would encourage you to stay off the road. Don't want anything happening to you guys, especially my uh, very generous listeners. So if you, like I said, if you can, kick back this weekend, enjoy some of these great games you got coming up, crack a beer, hang out with your family, and uh, like I said, and most importantly, stay warm and stay safe out there. We, we need you guys around. So I know that for me, I'm definitely looking forward to these big championship games coming up on Sunday. We're going to make our picks at the end of the show. Who's it going to be? Chiefs, Patriots, Rams, Saints. It's exciting stuff. This is probably the best Sunday, I would say, of the year. I can't wait to see these matchups. They were great games the first time around, and I'm really pumped up to see them uh, in round two. So I think that what makes me happy is that there's four great teams left, and I think that if we're being honest with ourselves, when we look back, we can say these were the four best teams all season. They all got off, for the most part, to really hot starts, had little bumps in the road towards the middle of the end of the season, had us maybe doubting that maybe the Chargers or the Bears or the Ravens or the Cowboys or one of these teams that had a late season streak was truly one of the better four teams in the league. But as it turns out, as we sit here two weeks before the Super Bowl, that nope, the teams that we thought were the best all year, the Saints, the Rams, the Chiefs, and the Patriots truly are, so I can't say that we're surprised. And that makes me happy because it lets me know that we'll have a worthy Super Bowl winner. I think all these four would qualify as such. And that's not to say that any team who ever wins the Super Bowl is unworthy. But I think that there are teams that when you look back over the years that have won, that really make you scratch your head and go, was that really the best team in the league? Or did they just go on a little hot streak at the right time? Because I think think that there is a a genuine difference. Call me crazy, but I wasn't convinced in 2011 that the 9-7 New York Giants were the juggernaut of the sport, that they were the best team in the league. They went on a great run. They got hot at the right time, and, and that's credit to them. 
but I think that that I, I felt a little bit let down that uh, that that was the team that got to ho- hoist the Lombardi Trophy, given the fact that they were barely above 500. So uh, I'm happy that we won't have that issue this year. I think that although all four could be a worthy champion. Only one winning would have a truly long-term impact on the league. And I don't know it for a fact, but if you look at the history of the NFL, you always hear the term, the NFL is a copycat league. And there's evidence of that with the Rams. Teams are already looking at what the Rams did when they're looking to find their new head coach. You don't have to look any further than some of the hires. Every team's looking for the next quarterback whisperer, the next young offensive guru, the next Sean McVay. If you look at the Packers with Matt LaFleur, who was McVay's coordinator his first season in L.A., he was the offensive coordinator for Tennessee last year, first-time play caller. Didn't do that well, but I guarantee you his connection with McVay and the Rams had something to do with him getting hired. Adam Gase, he was kind of Sean McVay before Sean McVay. If you think about his time in Denver, the fact that he had Jay Cutler playing competent football in Chicago, he was kind of considered the young offensive genius before McVay came along. He got a job with the Jets, despite not having a fi- above 500 record in Miami. And then, of course, I touched on this one last week. Cliff Kingsbury with the Cardinals, who's really not much more than a buddy of Sean McVay's. Now he looks like him. I know McVay offered him to be some kind of special offensive assistant for the postseason. But the reality is he didn't do much winning at Texas Sec, as we, we touched on last week. Yet, you know, on the off chance that he is that young offensive guru, on the, on the off chance that he can turn things around with Josh Rosen... The Cardinals felt like he was the best candidate as opposed to some other guys with a a much stronger resume and a longer track record. But I think if the Rams win the Super Bowl, teams may even take it a step further and look to build their team the way the Rams have in terms of their own rosters. Now, we've always been told the way to build a championship team is through the draft, acquiring picks, raising homegrown talent, spending carefully but wisely in free agency, but primarily... The team should be made up and built, and the core of a champion comes from the draft. An example of this would be this season, the Kansas City Chiefs. If you look at the stars on that team, Patrick Mahomes, Tyree Kill, Travis Kelsey, left tackle Eric Fisher on the defensive side of the ball. you got pass rushers like Chris Jones, Justin Houston, D. Ford. In the secondary, you'd look at a guy like Eric Berry. These are all guys, these are arguably, I'd say, the Chiefs' certainly most important players, And these are all guys who were drafted by Kansas City. Now, occasionally, they will go and spend in free agency, as we saw them do with Sammy Watkins. But for the most part, these are guys that they've picked, built up in their own system, and kind of molded them into the the championship contender that they are now. So the Chiefs theory obviously worked. And the Redskins, for a long time, put a black mark on the theory of trying to build a championship team through free agency. They had some egregious errors over the years in terms of overpaying guys to try to to buy a championship essentially and I think that the one that immediately comes to the mind of everyone is Albert Hainsworth the Redskins paid him an egregious amount the defensive tackle formerly of the Titans and he was a complete and colossal bust and really did nothing for the team but one thing that no one points out is that the Chiefs system is not foolproof either and a team that really you employed this system for years was the Cleveland Browns who stocked up on assets for the longest time and were constantly having high draft picks due to the fact that they were so awful. But they didn't build a winning program with those assets because they didn't know how to pick the right guys. Bringing in guys like Brandon Whedon, Trent Richardson, Philip Taylor, Johnny Manziel, Justin Gilbert. 
And some of those years, they had two picks in the first round in the same year and still couldn't hit on anyone. And that's largely because the NFL draft, at the end of the day, is a crapshoot. It's a gamble. You don't know what you're going to get with any of these picks. And if you are lucky enough to bring in enough great guys, yeah, awesome. You have a, a situation like you find in Kansas City. Cleveland, in fact, finds itself in a much better situation now because they've started to hit on some of those picks. But when you fail, it can be a colossal disaster, just the same as the Washington system. And I think that the Rams have decided to go a different route than what the traditional football guy, so to speak, would tell you. Now, don't get me wrong. The Rams have their fair share of homegrown stars. In fact, I think you could probably agree that their three biggest stars, quarterback Jared Goff, running back Todd Gurley, and defensive tackle Aaron Donald, are their three biggest stars. And they're they're three most important players, and I, I wouldn't dispute that. Donald, I think, is the best player in the NFL, and Gurley, you could argue, is the best running back in the league. Also, Goff has been a Pro Bowl player, so certainly the Rams have employed some of that into their own building of this unit. But the team has largely buffered that team through free agency. When you think about some of the guys they brought in, Robert Woods, Andrew Whitworth, the left tackle, John Sullivan, the center, Dominican Sue, the defensive tackle, all guys who came to Los Angeles through free agency, and they've been willing to make trades and trade away draft picks and assets. They've traded for guys like Brandon Cooks, Dante Fowler, the pass rusher from Jacksonville, Akib Tlaib, Marcus Peters. Even last year, they traded for Sammy Watkins before letting him go in favor of Brandon Cooks. So the Rams have built a large number of contributors of their contributing base of the team have come not from homegrown draft picks who they developed and coached up. They went out and got proven commodities and were willing to to spend money and assets to bring them in. Now, you saw this kind of model work in smaller portions for a couple other teams this year. You think about the Bears trading a first-round pick, actually two first-round picks for Khalil Mack, and the Cowboys at midseason trading a first-round pick for Amari Cooper when everybody said that they gave away too much. But I think the impact that the two of those guys had on their respective teams was was indisputable. These were teams that no one expected anything out of and both changed the entire momentum around those franchises and helped them have very successful seasons that that ended up in the playoffs. The Rams, on the flip side, since trading up for golf in 2016, haven't had a first-round pick, and yet in 2017 and 2018, they made the playoffs both times and obviously this year are a game away from playing for the Super Bowl. So not having that, that primary asset hasn't been detrimental to them. I think if the Rams win, teams will start to look more at trading these assets, trading these chips in for proven playmakers, guys who are ready to contribute now instead of guys who need to be molded. They will take proven commodities, even if it means giving away these kind of mystery, either superstars or busts. They are trading in what they don't know for something they definitely know. And I think that more teams may look to go that route if it proves successful for the Rams in terms of achieving the ultimate goal. Another factor that that is kind of in all this is that if the Rams win, I think that's a big win for players in terms of guys entering the free agent market. You see a lot of times teams kind of unwilling to spend, unwilling to pay big money for players, even if they know that their impact will be immediate because the long-term ramifications, because they don't want to tie up the salary cap or whatever. The Rams have said, to hell with all that. We're willing to spend money in free agency, we're willing to give up draft picks, and we're willing to win now while we don't have to pay our quarterback. And as the league is kind of transitioning to this model of winning big when your quarterback is still on the rookie deal, I think you'll see a lot more teams follow this, and that's only going to benefit veteran guys entering free agency looking to join contenders. 
The talk of the league right now is how everybody is copying the Rams and Sean McVay. It's been all over the news. You hear all the corny lines. Anybody who's had a beer with Sean McVay, anybody who's rubbed elbows with him at the grocery store can get a head coaching job. And look, I, I think that there's some truth to that. You've seen a lot of these guys get you know, jobs that maybe they wouldn't have gotten five, ten years ago because of his influence and his impact on Jared Goff and on the Rams. But hear me out. If the Rams win this weekend in New Orleans and then in Atlanta in a couple weeks, this copycat mentality that everybody's looking at the Rams, that just might be taken to an entirely different level. Speaking of a crucial time for a Los Angeles team, the Lakers are currently battling for playoff position in the crowded Western Conference. They got a big road win last night over the Oklahoma City Thunder and currently sit in eighth in the Western Conference. The team is in the midst of a 12-game stretch without superstar forward LeBron James, who suffered a groin injury on Christmas night against the Warriors. And in that 12-game stretch, they've gone 5-7. and seven. Now, there's no exact timeline on when LeBron's going to be back, but it is expected to be relatively soon. So for argument's sake, let's just be conservative and say that LeBron's going to miss the next three to five games. Those five games, if it is up to five, are against Houston, who... Can I just take a second as an aside to say what an incredible season James Harden is having? Last week, I did NBA midseason awards, and I said that Giannis, at this point, would be my midseason MVP above Harden. I was wrong about that. I'll say that now a week later. James Harden, the scoring tear that this guy is on, is unlike anything I can recall seeing in at least 10 years. I mean, I think in the last two games, he has 115 points, and none of them have been assisted on. I mean, the guy's just carrying a team that has been decimated by injuries. He's brought them back from a really, really rough start. And I hope that, you know, we all really take time to appreciate the greatness that we're seeing. I mean, I don't think it's sustainable. I don't think that it's even necessarily for the best in terms of long-term goals for the team because I don't believe that he'll be able to bring out his best stuff in the playoffs. I think that this will catch up with him and wear him down. But in the meantime, I mean, what an outstanding season the guy's having. It's just unreal. The way that he can score the basketball is, it's unlike anything, like I said, I've seen in at least 10 years. And I hope that we all are giving it its proper appreciation and context for, for our, what he's doing and how special it is. So with that being said, uh, back to the Lakers. They have a, a five-game potential segment where LeBron's going to be out uh, as far as five more games. So those games will be at Houston. And then they have a four-game homestand against Golden State, Minnesota, Phoenix, and Philadelphia. Make no mistake, and you may think I'm overreaching, but I don't think I am. It is absolutely crucial that the Lakers play well during the remaining stretch that LeBron is out. Now, I'm not just talking you know, for the playoff standings for this season. Though, obviously, in the Western Conference, look, in the West, every game is huge. Currently, just as an example... The third-seeded Thunder and the ninth-seeded Jazz, obviously the ninth seed meaning you're out because only eight teams make it, those two teams are separated by two games. The Lakers currently sit in eighth. So obviously these games are important in terms of you can't afford to give games away in the West. You can't afford to take a night off. You can't afford to take anything for granted because two games could be the difference between you hosting a playoff series and you sitting at home. But that's not the reason this is important. It's not important because the Lakers might miss the playoffs or they might get the eighth seed, get swept by Golden State, and they might have to fire their coach, Luke Walton, because I do believe should the Lakers miss the playoffs 
or get swept in the first round because they have a low seed, I do believe that Luke Walton will be gone. Now, I think Magic has enough patience and common sense to let him play out the rest of the season, but if it ends in a disapp- as disappointing a fashion as that, I don't think we'll see him back, back next year. But that's not why this time is crucial either. The reason that this stretch is so crucial for the Lakers is because it has a large effect on the long-term outcome of LeBron's tenure with the Lakers. And here's why. To me, the Lakers' best, most likely, and in my mind, only chance of winning a championship while LeBron is in LA is to acquire Anthony Davis from the Pelicans via trade. That's it. Well, people will say, well, what about the free agents? It's a really nice free agent class this year. Yeah, there is. But let's look a little deeper into some of those free agents that people want to, to bring up. Kevin Durant. Kevin Durant, first of all, I'm not 100% convinced he's leaving Golden State. But even if he is, do you really think he's leaving to team up with LeBron and become LeBron's sidekick? Kevin Durant thinks he's better than LeBron James, and he should think that. Now, I'm not saying he is. But given what he's accomplished in the last couple of years and the skill set and score and just freak that he is, he should believe that he's the best player in the world. And I don't think he's going to sign up to help LeBron win more. I think KD thinks he's better. And I think if he does leave Golden State, he'll go somewhere else to kind of build up his own team and his own legacy and not do it piggybacking off someone else, which people have already accused him of doing in Golden State. So we move on to Kawhi Leonard. I don't believe that Kawhi Leonard, should he leave for L.A., is leaving for L.A. to become a Laker. If Kawhi Leonard comes to Los Angeles, it will be to be a member of the Clippers. Kawhi is a low-key guy. He doesn't want any part of the circus that comes with being on LeBron James' team. And make no mistake, it is highly successful, but it is a circus. I think he would prefer to play in his hometown for a team that is his team, where he's the unquestioned best player where he doesn't have all that circus. And thankfully for him, with LeBron right in the same town, he could kind of fly under the radar even in a city like Los Angeles. I think if Kawhi leaves Toronto, where he is having a hell of a season, and I think has really changed the culture there, he's coming to become a Los Angeles Clipper. Kyrie Irving is another name you'll hear out there. Look, I understand that Kyrie apologized to LeBron recently for being a a needy teammate when they were together in Cleveland, not you know soaking in everything LeBron was trying to explain to him or whatever. That's all fine and well. Kyrie is not going to demand a trade away from LeBron and a couple years later you know, go out of his way to rejoin him. I think that if Kyrie leaves Boston, it'll be to play somewhere like the Knicks or the Nets. He's, he grew up a Nets fan. I don't see him and LeBron reuniting. I don't care that he apologized. I think that there was some subliminal messaging to his own teammates in that. Not to say it was entirely disingenuous, but... I think that there was some underlying meaning behind that. I don't take that as a sign that they're getting back together. Klay Thompson, he's not going to be anything but a warrior. I guarantee that the Warriors will not let him get away. When free agency opens at 12.01 a.m. or whenever that is, they will be at his door with a new deal in hand, ready to re-sign him, ready to make him a warrior for life. I don't think that the Warriors are totally convinced that they can sign KD. And if not, I promise they will make signing Klay Thompson back their top priority, and I don't think they'll have a problem convincing him to stay. Now that leaves a couple other guys, Jimmy Butler, Kemba Walker. Look, Jimmy's a great player. He's also a head case. I'm not sure that he, his personality would be the type that LeBron really wants to deal with. Uh, and I'm not sure the impact he has on teams in terms of winning. He's gone to other teams before that have other stars, and they haven't really taken that leap. I'm not sure that he's the piece 
that the Lakers need to, to suddenly become a serious contender. Another guy, you throw out maybe Kemba Walker, who I think is a great player. I've been a Kemba fan since he was at UConn. I think he's outstanding. Love what he's done in Charlotte, but... If I'm being totally honest, I don't think that either that he's Kemba Walker is the thing keeping the Lakers from being a championship contender. So to me, the best chance to acquire a superstar is Anthony Davis, in part because they could trade for him. Now, free agents do not have a great history of coming to play with LeBron. In fact, many of them have opted to do otherwise. You've heard him talk openly about how he couldn't get guys to come to Cleveland. Now, granted, some of that is because they don't want to live in Cleveland. But even last year, he he signed with L.A. before Paul George. Paul George, by the way, who prior to landing in OKC said publicly, I want to play for the Lakers. I'm from there. If you don't trade me to the Lakers, I'll play where I have to play for one season, and then I will go become a Laker. And he had the opportunity to sign up to be LeBron's sidekick, and he said, no, I'd rather live in Oklahoma City. I'd rather stay here. And I think part of that's because when you play with LeBron, who is a great player, who is a a great leader who is one of the, I think probably the second best player in the history of the NBA. But the reality is when, if you're LeBron's teammate, when your team wins, he's going to get all the credit. And when his team loses, you're going to get all the blame. Ask Kevin Love about being LeBron's second best player, about being his second fiddle, or even Kyrie who hit the game winning shot in game seven. Nobody talks about that. They talk about LeBron's block. You would think LeBron blocked the ball off the backboard into the other hoop. Kyrie made the big shot, and make no mistake, if the roles were reversed and Kyrie had blocked Andre Iguodala and LeBron had pulled up for three in Steph's eye and hit the game-winning shot, then you'd hear all about the shot. So there is kind of that, that pros and cons you know, aspect of being LeBron's teammate. Yeah, you'll succeed a lot, but you won't get much of the credit, and some guys don't want to be a part of that. So with all that being said, the Lakers' best chance is to acquire AD, and the only way they can do that is to have young pieces with value. The Lakers' young pieces during this stretch have to improve their own value if the Lakers want to get AD down the road. They've got to play well. They've got to win some of these games. That means guys like Brandon Ingram, Kyle Kuzma, who has been playing well, Josh Hart, Lonzo Ball. These guys have to step their game up and play well, not only to help the team win in the short term, but make themselves... And look, they probably aren't aware of this, but make themselves tradable assets. If you're Magic Johnson, that's what you have to be rooting for. Otherwise, let's say the Lakers lose the majority of the rest of these games, finish 6-11 and without LeBron. So essentially what they show is when their young pieces don't have the best player in the world on their team, they can't win any games, especially in the Western Conference. Then they're, they're these assets that they supposedly have, they lose value. And you take a team like Boston, who has also expressed interest in AD, they can come in and swoop and take AD, and they actually have better assets. You think about guys like Jalen Brown, uh, Jason Tatum, Gordon Hayward even, or Terry Rozier, along with some draft picks. You could argue they already have a better case to be made and a better package to offer. And typically, teams don't want to trade guys within their own conference. So the Pelicans, the Celtics also have the, the benefit of being in the East. The Pelicans may be more inclined to trade AD out of conference should they have to get rid of him. So let's say all that, if the Lakers don't play well and things go poorly... You're going to have LeBron going into 2020, his 17th season coming off an injury, not a serious injury, but injury nonetheless, with a team that's essentially the same. Even if you acquire Kemba Walker, I'm not sure that they, that makes them a serious contender. And, and you're wasting what's left of LeBron's you know MVP-level ability. So if I'm LeBron James, I am heavily, heavily invested in how things go in the next couple of weeks. In these next three to five games, I am shaking in my boots about how these guys need to play well and it has very little to do with the rest of this season 
One team, one NBA team, that has no such thing as a crucial stretch in terms of the regular season is the Golden State Warriors. The Warriors have won six in a row, including on Tuesday night blowing out the team in the West that was the number one seed, the Denver Nuggets. In Denver, they beat them by 31 points, and that included a 51-point first quarter that was the most in NBA history. Now look, we all should have seen this coming, but the media likes to overreact. Everyone nowadays wants to be first instead of being right. You remember what I'm talking about, right? Don't sit here and tell me that you never heard anybody doubt the Warriors, doubt that we'd be sitting here right now, almost at the All-Star break with them in first in the West. You don't remember in early November when Draymond and Kevin Durant got into that spat in the overtime loss? It was all over the news. Golden State then, following that game, lost four in a row. Three of them by 20 points or more. It, it was a total disaster. I mean, Kevin Durant and Draymond Green were fighting, couldn't get along. They weren't even speaking, allegedly. Steph Curry was injured. Steve Kerr couldn't get control of the team, couldn't get him on track. Surely, the Warriors dynasty as we knew it, one of the most talented teams ever, was coming apart right in front of our eyes because of a early argument in the huddle in November. Look, we do this all the time in sports. Everybody wants to peg the beginning to the end before it happens. Everybody wants to be the first one to say, hey, I, I was the first one to call You know, when, uh, when the Warriors started to really come apart. I said earlier that season they wouldn't, they wouldn't win the championship because you know, when, when Draymond and Kevin got in that fight, I, I knew that was it for them. Everybody wants to be the first guy to make a big, bold statement, to have a hot take. And look, like I said, we do it all the time. Just look at one of the final four teams sitting in the NFL. They're, they're still left. The Patriots, you remember them? You know, greatest dynasty in the history of the NFL. Yeah, they were sitting at one and two earlier in the season. Bad, ugly road losses back to back. They got their butts handed to them by Blake Bortles in Jacksonville. And then actually a game I was at, my girlfriend, full disclosure, is a diehard Patriots fan, which I honestly never thought I would be involved with someone like that, but what can I say? Love makes you do crazy things. So as a gift for her birthday, I took her to that Patriots game against the Lions, and we both sat there shocked as they were dismantled by Zach Galifianakis, I mean uh, Matt Patricia, and the Lions. Uh, So, you know, here we go. They're done. Uh Uh-oh, Patriots are, dynasty's over. Brady's looking old. They don't have enough weapons. Belichick's, even his assistants are starting to figure him out. But then, of course, they went and won 8 out of 9, and everything was fine. Uh Oh, but not quite, because then, remember, they had back-to-back losses to the Dolphins. Remember that Miami miracle? Rob Gronkowski's back there. What's he doing back there? Belichick, does he know what he's even doing anymore? They lost to Miami. Well, they they always lose to Miami, but they'll beat Pittsburgh next week, because they own Pittsburgh. Oh, but wait, they went on the road and lost to the Pittsburgh. Tom Brady looks old, throws a bad red zone interception. Patriots only score 10 points. This And people came to the conclusion of this. Look, the Patriots will make the playoffs, okay? But it's just because their division's weak. This is not the same Patriots team that we've come to know. I mean, it, it's coming to an end. It's over. They'll be one and done in the playoffs. This team just, they just can't do it. And now, a week after dismantling what many had pegged as the most talented team in the NFL, they're one game away from the Super Bowl. By the way, Think about the questions you heard regarding Alabama after they got the doors blown off them by Clemson uh, about a week and a half ago. 
Come on, really think about him. I know you heard some of the, oh, is this the passing of the torch? Is this the beginning of the end of the Alabama dynasty? Nick Saban, he might be losing it. I don't know if he's, you know, the same coach. He's losing too many assistants. I, this, this could be it. This, was a, this could be a monumental night. This is all about a team, by the way, that went 14-1, and undefeated in the SEC, and uh, was playing in the title game. This is who we're, we're being real critical of and, and trying to find big, real, long-term flaws with. I'd be willing to bet my student loans, the rest of my student loan payment, that Alabama will be right back in the playoff next year. And if there's anyone out there listening who would like to take me up on that, I immediately get in touch with me uh, via Facebook or, or however. I would love to, to take you up on that. Look, we do this all the time. We try to convince ourselves that other teams are real contenders. The cow- look at the NFL, the Cowboys, the Bears, the Ravens, in college football, Notre Dame's a real contender. We try to convince ourselves that the teams we think, we go into the season knowing are good, we get caught up in these lulls in the middle of the season, and we try to convince ourselves, oh, no, 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 they're not that good anymore. They're, these other teams are better. These new teams, these will be the guys to knock them off. And it never is. In the NBA this year, I'm sure there were people out there, especially during that, uh, that November dire dispute between Draymond and Kevin, there are other people saying that, hey, the Thunder, I know I heard the Lakers could step up to this dysfunctional Golden State team, the Rockets, certainly, and even if they somehow escape the West, the Raptors and the Celtics are good enough to take them down. People out there convince themselves, and, and some sure some still believe, that one of those teams, and not the Warriors, will win the championship this year. That's ludicrous. Golden State isn't the same. They're arguing someone else is going to win. Stop. Golden State's going to win this year, and you can bank on it now. Right now. They have the best players. That matters. They have the best system. That matters. Arguably the best coaching staff. Certainly that matters. Oh, and tonight, uh, if you haven't heard, Boogie Cousins... Yes, that Boogie Cousins all-star, 25-13 and 13 Boogie Cousins, makes his debut for the Warriors coming off an injury, giving them five all-stars to go along with the greatest shooter of all time, another top-five shooter, the most natural freak scorer at seven feet I've ever seen, and a, another all-star and defensive player of the year in Draymond Green. So they'll have five now. Look, guys, this is just a piece of advice that I've learned the hard way many times, so don't get me wrong. Don't try to be first, just try to be right. It's like when you're taking a test in school. The kid who finishes first doesn't necessarily get the best grade. He just wants to be done with it. Check your answers. Go back. Reread each question. Make sure you get it right. Look, the Warriors will lose some games they shouldn't the rest of the regular season because it doesn't really matter to them. That's what happens when you've been to four straight NBA Finals and won three. Regular season ain't that big of a deal. Been there, done that. They might not win 65 games. They might not even get the number one seed in the West. They didn't last year, but we know how it ended. They were first in terms of championships won that season. When this season is over in June, the Warriors will have their fourth championship in five years, cementing their place as one of the greatest teams ever, one of the greatest dynasties ever. Just like we all knew they would before that little heat, heated moment in November. 
The only question that there is to ask about the Warriors' pending championship is who they'll beat in each round of the playoffs and in the finals, because that's to be determined. And whether Kevin Durant will get his third finals MVP or if Steph will finally get one for himself. Look, don't try to be first. Don't try to be the guy who breaks the story, who hits the hot take. Don't be the guy who overreacts to a mid-November spat. The Warriors are going to win the whole thing. They're the best team in the NBA. And in June, I guarantee you, we'll all be laughing about when we thought that Kevin Durant and Draymond Green calling each other names was going to keep this team from winning another ring. So growing up, I played my fair share of sports, and uh, it's tough to admit this publicly, but I was never what you would call a a very gifted athlete. Uh, I played football growing up, a little basketball, some golf, ran a little track, Uh, and while I enjoyed doing it, I had a blast. I met some of my best friends playing those sports over the years. Uh, I was never what you would call a superstar talent. Uh, I think it would be safe to say it. We'll, We'll just leave it at that. So certainly as a sports fan, as a kid who grew up loving sports, wanting to be a pro athlete, wanted to be so great at just one thing, you can imagine my envy when talking about Kyler Murray. Now, if you're not familiar with Kyler Murray, he is the Heisman Trophy winning quarterback from the Oklahoma Sooners, who also was in last season's MLB draft, a first round outfielder for the Oakland Athletics. Now, initially what was expected after Murray was picked by the A's was that he would play one more season of college football, get it all out of his system, then give up his football career to go ahead and start a long career with the A's. And then the Heisman Trophy winning season happened and suddenly his intentions are not so clear. In fact, recently he announced that he's going to enter the NFL draft. Now, just because Murray entered the draft, it doesn't necessarily mean he's going to pick the NFL. And lately there's been a lot of debate as to whether Kyler should pick the career of playing baseball or playing football professionally. I'm not here to judge Kyler Murray either way. I'm not here to tell him what's wrong or what's right. I'm not here to say that if he picks one, he'll be an idiot, and if he picks another, he'll be a genius. He should do, ultimately, what makes him happy. He has earned two incredible opportunities that very few before him have gotten. It speaks to his work ethic. It speaks to the skills that he's been gifted with and the talent. And so whatever he chooses, as long as it's what's in his heart, as long as it's what makes him happy, I think that's what he should do. Many people out there, however, seem to do, do seem to have an opinion. And it seems like a lot of them seem to believe that Murray should pick baseball over the more physically demanding rough game of football. And at first glance, I see why. It makes sense. There's longevity to MLB careers. The contracts are guaranteed. And Murray's size, which he's listed at 5'10", you know, a buck eighty, a buck eighty-five. He's probably closer to five nine and a half. His size, which is a concern for some of the NFL level, it's no issue in Major League Baseball. Size is really not a problem. But for me, this is not an issue of asking him to choose between being a professional baseball player or choosing to be a professional football player. It's choosing between being a Major League outfielder or an NFL quarterback, and that that carries a little more weight. Look, if I were advising Kyler Murray, I would tell him, like I said, do what makes you happy. Do what's in your heart. If that didn't work, then I would give him my honest opinion. I would tell him to choose football. 
And I understand that sounds a little crazy, but hear me out on this. As far as the baseball is concerned, look, Kyler only had a little less than 300 at-bats in college. Now, he hit 296, which is pretty good, and he had an on-base percentage of about 400, which is excellent. And I think that, along with his physical skills and potential, is what drew the A's to him. But the reality is, given the fact that he's had so few at-bats in his career, he'd probably need at least three full seasons riding the bus in the minor leagues before he was able to get to the major league level at the age of, let's say, 24. He's 21 now, so after three seasons, that's where he'd be. Given these weird rules of arbitration and, and you know contract limitations in baseball that, that, quite honestly, I don't entirely understand, he wouldn't be eligible to get his first real big money contract until the age of 30. And the big money is only guaranteed if, one, he even makes it out of the minors, and, and two, that he's, that he's a superstar, that he's damn good. Now, obviously, the A's think he will be, or they wouldn't have spent such a high pick on him. But let's look at the other side of the coin. What if he chooses football? If Kyler Murray chooses football and is a first-round pick at quarterback, which he's expected to be at this point, ESPN NFL draft analyst Mel Kuyper just released his mock draft with Murray going 13th overall to the Dolphins. So let's go off that. Based on what the 13th overall pick made last year, if Murray is selected in that slot, his contract for the NFL would be four years for roughly $14 million with an $8 million signing bonus. Now, that may not sound like a ton of money, but just as a, as a gauge, so to speak, Aaron Judge, the outfielder for the New York Yankees, who's one of the biggest stars on not just the team, but in the league, he's one of the faces of Major League Baseball. Due to the MLB's contract rules, their arbitration, he made under $700,000 this season. So ask him if he thinks Kyler Murray's rookie NFL contract doesn't sound too good. I bet you it does. When you enter the NFL draft you're immediately at the highest level. There's no riding the bus. There's no playing minor league football for three years to develop. Once you're in it, you're there. And if you're good, the potential for endorsements, the potential as a, as a NFL franchise quarterback, the potential for off-the-field lucrative markets, it's all there. Furthermore, if Murray's only a decent NFL quarterback, if he's just solid, if he's an average guy, He'll get big money in today's NFL contract once his rookie deal is up, and I'm talking big money. 23 NFL quarterbacks in 2018 had contracts worth over $10 million a year. Now, I know what some of you may be thinking. Well, that's got to be the guys like the Tom Brady's, the Drew Brees's, the Ben Roethlisberger's, the Phillip Rivers, you know, the Aaron Rodgers, right? That's that's mostly just those kind of guys that, that got that money. Maybe Russell Wilson, you know, certainly, but but other the, those kind of guys, right? No, some of them certainly, but that's not all. How about how about these names? How about Andy Dalton, Blake Bortles, Jimmy Ten Starts Garoppolo, Kirk Cousins, Derek Carr, and Matt Stafford. By the way, those last four I named are in the top ten of quarterback salaries. Those guys are just guys. There's no Hall of Fame busk lining up for these dudes. There's no all-pro appearances or Super Bowl rings on any of those guys. Those are just average NFL starters. If Kyler Murray can be an average NFL starter, he's looking at big money. He's looking at baseball superstar money. Now, another concern you hear about Kyler is when I mentioned before that his size could hold him back. It's a concern for NFL teams. Personally, I don't think his size is going to keep him from being, at the very least, a solid pro NFL quarterback. There are examples, especially recently, of guys being small, 
and playing well at this level. Now, granted, none of them have been as short as he is, but you look at guys, obviously, like Drew Brees is, is kind of the poster child for that, one of the, the all-time leading passes in the NFL, about to play in an NFC Championship game. You think about guys like Russell, whose game is similar to Kyler's in terms of the mobility, uh, Russell Wilson, of course, and then Baker Mayfield, who measured in at barely over six feet, he had an excellent rookie season, and obviously he played at the same Oklahoma program from which Kyler comes. I think as far as skill set and player style, I will say the guy he reminds me most coming out, and I, and I hate to admit this, is Johnny Manziel. Uh, just because of, you see the scrambling, you see the mobility, you see kind of that willingness to take shots down the field. Now, I will say, I was a fan of Johnny coming out, and he failed massively at the NFL level, but I don't think Johnny's failures were because he was short. Johnny failed because of off-the-field issues and, and the fact that you know he didn't seem to take football seriously. Assuming that you don't have any of that stuff with Kyler, he's Johnny on steroids. He has a better arm. He's more mobile. And he's obviously much more mentally ready, I think, for the, the life that the NFL would bring. Trait-wise, he's got elite speed, great instincts. You see the field vision. And I think the one thing that surprised for people is, given his stature, the arm talent on this kid just pops. I mean, he, he can really fling the football. He's very accurate. Uh as far as being a passer, I don't think he's as accurate as, say, Mayfield, but certainly accurate enough. You can see his ability to make big throws into tight windows. He has all the things you'd want outside of a six foot three frame. Another issue you hear with the size is that, well, he could get injured, you know, and obviously playing football in general, there's that risk. But not for a quarterback necessarily. Now, obviously, look, quarterbacks still get hurt in football in today's day and age. You saw how Jimmy G got hurt running to the sideline. But given all the rule changes, it is safer than ever to be an NFL quarterback. You can't hit him below the knee. You can't hit him above the neck. You can't drag them. You can't drive them into the ground. You can't land on top of them when you sack them. They're protected on slides. I mean, th- these guys are are as protected now as they have ever been, and it's only going to get worse. I mean, the NFL has made it clear they want superstar quarterbacks available on Sunday. No one pulls up to a New England Patriots game on Sunday to see Brian Hoyer or to a Ben Roethlisberger game to see Joshua Dobbs. They want to see superstars play. The NFL understands that, and they've taken actions to prevent injuries to quarterbacks. So while it's not a completely, totally safe game, not as safe as baseball, I think that it's as as safe a time as any to be an NFL quarterback. At the end of the day, my thoughts are this. Look, Kyler should do for the third time what makes him happy. It's his life. He's the one who has to live with his choices. If he loves baseball and that's what's in his heart, then good luck to him. He's, he's clearly got some skills, some physical skills, some potential that the A's saw in him, that they thought enough of him to draft him that high. And if that's what he wants to do, I wish him nothing but the best. If he came to me and he asked me and said, these make me equally happy, what should I do? I think the NFL offers more in terms of the endorsements he could make in terms of the long-term money that he's more likely to get. I think he's more likely to be an average NFL player than a superstar major league baseball player. And I'll just say this. I can't imagine that there's any bigger rush than being an NFL quarterback running out of the tunnel on a Sunday, as opposed to running out to a half empty stadium in July for the A's. And that's no disrespect that's just what I feel. So I hope whatever he chooses, he makes makes him happy, is what ends up being the right choice for him. Kyler Murray asked me, I'm choosing football. And as Dion said, I'm not looking back. All right, we are going to move on to our final segment of today's show. Hope you guys have enjoyed what you've heard so far. If you've stuck around this long to hear 
this portion of the show. I really appreciate it. Uh, If not, hey, still appreciate you tuning in for at least a little bit. But we're going to go ahead and look forward to these conference championships this NFL Sunday. As far as the playoffs are concerned, so far I am 6-2 in my playoff picks straight up, 3-1 in each round. Uh, Last week my only mistake was picking Dallas, which may have been a selection made more with my heart than my head, and you'd think that over the years I would have learned, but uh, what can I say? I guess I'm a glutton for punishment. Uh, but we're only 4-4 four and four against the spread, including 1-3 and three last week. A rough week. I really thought that the underdogs would come in more ready to play, but uh, clearly the bye weeks are just a huge advantage for these teams, maybe now more than ever, and uh, I guess I can't say I'm surprised. No team that has played in the Super Bowl has played a road game since the Ravens and 49ers both did it in 2012. So clearly having home field means something, having a bye means something, and that's a lesson to apply certainly in the future. So uh, okay with my pick straight up, hoping to bounce back this week as far as against the spread. And so we'll go ahead and take a look first at the NFC Championship game. That is Sunday in the early game with the Rams visiting the Saints in New Orleans. Uh, Obviously these teams met earlier in the season. The Saints took care of the Rams 45-35, to uh, obviously a shootout of a game. The Rams kind of got pounced on early, I think in a way that they weren't expecting, fought back, but ultimately the Saints uh, took the game home. The big throw from Drew Brees over the top to Michael Thomas ended up being the difference. Thomas hits the, the cell phone celebration, which I thought was just outstanding. I still remember watching Joe Horn pull out his cell phone when he scored that night, so to, to see it again was pretty cool. The Rams, obviously, they are coming in feeling very good about themselves. They ran all over the Dallas Cowboys last week. And I got to say, the C.J. Anderson edition has been one that's just been huge, both figuratively and literally. I got to say, I didn't see that guy coming in and having much of an impact at all. He and Todd Gurley absolutely rolled through Dallas last week. They had no answer. Uh, Anderson looks like a bowling ball, but, I mean, the way he's bouncing off tacklers, I guess that, that may be beneficial. And obviously what Gurley has... I mean, he's just a freak, and he's arguably the most talented back in the league. So the Rams come in on a physical role. Aqib Tlaib is also back for Los Angeles. They didn't have him the first time when they played New Orleans, and I think that is a huge thing that they've got him back in this game. Marcus Peters tried to kind of travel with Michael Thomas, and we all know how that went. So certainly having Aqib back is going to be a huge bonus for the Rams. But I will say... One guy the Rams had the last time these teams played and they don't have going into this game is Cooper Cup. And he's kind of a guy who flies under the radar. He's a small white kid out of eastern Washington, so he's not the most glamorous receiver. But the Rams, and particularly Jared Goff, have not looked as sharp since he went out with a season-ending injury. They had him in the last game. He had a big game. Will not be there this week, and I think that could end up hurting Los Angeles. Aaron Donald in the last meeting. Aaron Donald, the guy who I've pegged as the best player maybe in the whole NFL. In fact, I would say as as of today, he is the best player in the NFL. The last time these teams played, he played a season high in snaps, and yet he didn't have a sack. That cannot happen if the Rams want to have a chance to win this game. Aaron Donald has to show up and be his dominant self. He needs to have at least two or three impact plays that change this game. The Rams need him. That is what they paid him all that money for. He is a guy who has to be better than he was last game. I would say they really have no shot. He is the difference maker on that defense. As for the Saints, obviously they come in. Michael Thomas, I don't want to touch on this guy right away. He is on a hot streak. I mean, the way he played against Philly last week, he was outstanding. He's been outstanding all season. Obviously, we touched on what he did to Marcus Peters. I don't think he'll have as big a performance this week, given that Aqib Tlaib is back. And also, I don't think Peters is going to be torched like he was. But I don't think that's going to stop him from having a very productive, very big game. 
But one unit that's kind of gone under the radar in this whole kind of last stretch of the season has been the Saints' defense. They've been playing really well as of late, and in particular, the second half. Sean Payton and his staff have done an excellent job the last few weeks of coming out of halftime with adjustments and shutting the opposing team's offense down. You saw that as recently as last week with Philly. They get the touchdowns on their first couple of drives, and then not only in the second half, but the rest of the game, they don't score. I think that could be key in this game. I wouldn't be surprised if the Rams came out and played well. They have a high-powered offense. They're going to move the chains. They're going to get their points. But watch to see what the Saints do in the second half to take away some of what's working for Los Angeles and see if boy genius Sean McVay can come up with new ways to, uh, to keep the ball moving. Drew Brees is a guy you obviously have to watch for in this game. That goes without saying. We're talking about a guy who is 6-0 in playoff games, played in the Superdome. It's damn difficult to win in there. I trust Drew Brees a lot more than I trust Jared Goff in this game, who, like I said, has not played well as well since Cooper Cup got hurt. That's not to say I don't like Goff. I think he's going to be good in the long run. But in a game of this magnitude, at this point in his career, I'm going to take Drew Brees and his MVP role that he's been on. The Saints, I think the big thing to take away from is this. Last week, the Saints had their slow start, poor showing kind of game against Philly, and they escaped with a win. I don't believe they'll come out this week that way. I think they will come out focused. I think they'll come out ready. They're not going to come out flat. I think they're going to punch the Rams in the mouth early. Now, the Rams will counter, and they'll handle some of that. But ultimately, I think Drew Brees, Sean Payton in New Orleans is just too much. I'm going to go ahead and take the Rams. I'm sorry, I'm going to go ahead and take the Saints to beat the Rams and cover the three and a half. I think the Rams... uh, we're gonna have their are gonna have their day, but I don't think this is their year. I think that they defensively are still a little too flawed. I don't think the, they'll be able to run the ball like they did against Dallas. I think the, the Saints will kind of key on that. And then you're asking me, do I expect Jared Goff to make more key throws than Drew Brees on the road? I just don't at this point. So I'm taking the Saints to beat the Rams and go to the Super Bowl. In the second game, we have New England traveling to Kansas City to take on the Chiefs. The Patriots in that game are three point underdogs. Obviously, like the Saints and the Rams, these teams met earlier this season with the Patriots winning the previous matchup 43-40 in Foxborough. Now the Patriots, I gotta say, I picked them to win last week, but I did not expect them to win like that. They shocked me with the way they came out against the Chargers and just completely dismantled that team really from the opening kick. It was stunning to see. Tom Brady is a guy who's gotten a lot of flack for his age, obviously, and and the way he's played this season I don't think is, is a sta- uh, season that he would say was up to par for him, but the way he's played in the playoffs, including last week where he was outstanding, Tom Brady in playoff games in the last three seasons, this is a court over the course of seven games, so it's seven playoff games in three seasons, he's averaged 373 yards passing with 16 touchdowns to three picks, and he's 6-1, and one, the only loss, of course, being last year's Super Bowl. So for whatever reason, I don't know what kind of fountain of youth he's found in the playoffs, but he's played his best football in the biggest games, which, let's be honest, is pretty characteristic of what he's done most of his career. That being said, he has not won a road playoff game since 2006. Now, he's only had three chances since that time because the Patriots so often have home field advantage, but he's owned three in all three of those games, granted all to Peyton Manning teams, and we all know Peyton has never been easy to beat. But that 0-3 mark carries a little extra weight to me, in part because the Patriots in general were not a, were not a very good road team this season, going just 3-5 and five on the road, including ugly losses to Jacksonville and Detroit. Now, granted, those games were in warm weather climates. I don't necessarily think that that matters, but the fact of the matter is they have not been able to travel well and play their best football on the road. Kansas City, meanwhile, has played their best football at home, going 8-1 and one this season. Their only loss was against the Chargers, 
who won in a late two-point conversion. So really, they played damn near perfect at home. Their defense plays much better at home than it does on the road, uh, allowing, I believe, almost half as many points at home as they do on the road. So their defense comes to play when that crowd is behind them. I think the key to beating Tom Brady has always been being able to generate a strong pass rush without the blitz. Now, the Chiefs have the personnel to do that with D4, Justin Houston, and Chris Jones, but they didn't do it last time, and it cost them, which is why the Patriots were able to light them up for, for 43 points. If the Chiefs want to have a chance, they, those three have to get to Tom Brady and have to get to him early and often to take him off of his rhythm. As far as the Chiefs' offense is concerned, you look at obviously it all starts with Pat Mahomes. He was fooled early the last time he played the Patriots. He had two picks uh, in the first half. And look, Belichick has always been good at scheming against young quarterbacks, but even given that he, he really had not, not his best first half, he still ended up torching him and finishing the game with 352 yards and four touchdowns. So I'm not sure you can really ever stop this kid. He can slow him down a little bit, and obviously that's what Belichick will look to do. But Andy Reid is the, is the great kryptonite to that. Andy Reid, as a game planner versus Bill Belichick, you can't deny he's been excellent. This stat really shocked me. Since 2014, the Patriots have given up 40 points in a game only three times in the regular season. All three were against Andy Reid's Chiefs, twice with Alex Smith, and now obviously bringing Patrick Mahomes, who is on a different level. I think the key to this game will be actually running back play. It's going to be cold, and you're going to see how can, for the Patriots, can Sony Michelle run like he did last week, and James White, I believe, caught 15 balls last week. It's going to be cold. Brady's going to be looking to go to him early a lot, you know, in check down situations and such. Can he have another big game against Damian Williams? Can Damian Williams be what Kareem Hunt has been against the Pats? Because Kareem Hunt, when he was in Kansas City, played New England twice, and he shredded them both times, had huge games. If Damian Williams can step in and, and put up similar production against the Patriots, I think it might be too much for that New England offense to overcome trying to keep up with Kansas City. I think that here's the reason I'm picking the Chiefs and and it's not I don't feel great about it but I think you look at the first AFC championship game in Arrowhead the fans are going to be rocking that is a great fan base a great home environment the Patriots as I said have not played on the road whereas the Chiefs have played their best football all year at home in Kansas City I think it'll be close I think it's going to be a game that comes down to the wire but give me Kansas City to beat New England I'll take New England to cover the three I think it honestly could be like a 30 to 28 kind of game but give me Kansas City to beat the Patriots and go ahead and head to their first Super Bowl in over, I believe, like 50 years. So I'm picking Saints, Chiefs, in the Super Bowl. Those would be the number two number one seeds. Not exactly exciting, but uh, I got to go with what I believe. Looking forward to watching the games regardless. I can't wait. Um, it's always, like I said, arguably the best Sunday of the NFL season. So I hope that you guys will be watching too. Otherwise, uh, we're going to go ahead and wrap this up. Uh, I appreciate all you out there who, who continued to, to listen this week. Uh, I really appreciate all the feedback and support last week. So if, there, if you hear anything this week that kind of catches your ear or, or makes you wonder what the hell I was thinking, feel free to comment on the Facebook uh, post that includes this podcast. Otherwise, I hope you guys have a safe weekend. Have a fun weekend. Try to stay warm if you're living in the Midwest like I am. And... Uh, Feel free to go ahead and tune in next week because we always love having more listeners. Tell your friends, tell your family. It's all love. I really appreciate it. Uh, and, and I really appreciate the support that I've gotten from everybody who already listened and reached out. So with that being said, hope you guys have a good one. And thanks for listening to the Good Guy Podcast.